Today on The Black Goat, we have a special guest, Rich Lucas from Michigan State University, who's going to talk with us about doing replication research. Our letter is about should I stay or should I go, staying in or leaving academia. And Samin and I are maybe going to rant a little bit, too. But not Alexa. (laughs) I never rant. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of The Black Goat. Uh, My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. And today we've got a special guest, Rich Lucas, who's hanging out with Samin at UC Davis. Uh, Hi, Rich. Hi, Sanjay. Thanks for joining us. So uh, we're actually going to be uh, talking to Rich about Rich uh, later on, but we asked him to join us for the whole episode. So he's going to be uh, chiming in on our letters and and everything else. Uh, so that's the the plan for today. Um, we wanted to start. We were trying to. We always talk about like little things at the beginning, and I'm uh, uh, I'm a little afraid I'm going to like get off on this and and work up ahead of steam, but. Uh, you know, something that's been kind of on my mind lately that I, I sort of tweeted about the other day, um, It's and it's something that surprisingly, like, I haven't heard a lot of, I, I've heard rumblings about, but I haven't heard sort of big dialogue about, is the sort of, like, the gender implications of the sort of lengthening of early career paths in science, and in particular, postdocs. So I feel like there's a lot of talk about adjuncts and, and, you know, sort of contingent teaching positions and that kind of thing. And that's super important. Um, one of the things, you know, I don't know what you guys think like over, I mean, I feel like over the course of my career, postdocs have become a lot more normal, right. For social and personality psychologists. And it feels like in biology, it's gone from, you have to do one to you have to do two. So they're getting like more and more. And, you know, and that's, I think that's a much discussed issue. I think I haven't heard as much conversation. Maybe I just haven't been plugged in. I hope I'm not doing the Trump thing. People should be talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, a lot more complicated than you would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> is is the, the, the idea that that might be having differential effects on people from different backgrounds and gender being one, I think, important piece of it. I don't think it's the only one, right? So this idea that, like, in order to be an academic scientist, you have to like uproot and move a bunch of times. And we're adding uproots every time we add another postdoc and that that's going to affect different people differently. And, and maybe, you know, not in ways that are reflecting merit or better training or kind of making science better. Um, so anyway, I'm annoyed about that. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were I annoyed think, too. I mean, I think that's definitely true. Oh, so means annoyed about something else. We're going to get to that. But I mean, that is annoying too. I agree. If I, I can get annoyed about that. The thing that I was spontaneously annoyed about was that, uh, so actually I was visiting another university and talking to a graduate student and that this graduate student was telling me that she's going to go on the job market next year. And I noticed she was wearing a wedding band and she'd mentioned her husband and her husband's also an academic. And I said, you know, are you going to like mention that on the job market? And she said, no, like I'm going to go on the job market on my own. And then we'll figure out once we know what the options are. And so then I like was like, so what are you going to say? Because it's going to come up like and I was like, it's illegal, but people are going to like fish for this information. And, like, are you going to wear your wedding band? And, and I was kind of getting like annoyed on her behalf that this was going to make it difficult for her. And then it reminded me of like times when I've been on search committees and heard people on the search committee that I was on saying like, well, her husband is a professor. So if we can't get a job for him, then we shouldn't even bother or or like more subtle things. Like I noticed that she's married, so that's going to be more difficult. And like base rate wise, it's an accurate stereotype that women are more likely if they're married to have a partner who has a career that's important to them than men are. I mean, that's just like just the reality, I think less and less so, but it's still probably an accurate base rate guess. Just the fact of being in a relationship for a woman, people assume you're in a relationship with a man. They assume that that person has a career that's important to them and that that's going to factor into whether you're likely to come or not. So like, yeah, immediately, like consciously or unconsciously raises all these stereotypes that harm women, even though they're accurate, but that's still not okay. And <laughs> like, even, even if they're like, even if the base rate weren't that way, if the perception is that way, then it's still going to work against people. Right. So, and especially if our perceptions change more slowly than base rates change. 
But I mean, even if the base, even if it's an accurate perception, it's just unethical and illegal to use that yeah, information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, so then on Twitter, people were saying, well, but are you supposed to like offer it to someone who you know is very unlikely to take it and then you might lose out on the other candidates? I'm like, yes, you are supposed to do that. I'm sorry, but like that's the place to fix that problem is not by skipping the most deserving candidate. And then people were like, well, what if the person's just doing it to get an outside offer? And I'm like, well, people have to get outside offers to get raises. That's a reality. You can't not offer it to the best. If, if it's objectively clear who the best candidate is, which is a whole other issue. But mm-hmm. if the search committee agrees, the only reason they're not offering it to that person is because that person's not likely to take it. That seems super wrong to me. And yeah, like often people are just doing it to get a raise. But then the man who can bluff and pretend he's going to move is going to get the raise and the woman's not. And it's, again, right. not just gender. But. And if people are aware that they have a bias, but they um, know that they're not allowed to have that bias or shouldn't have that bias, then people should be more proactive about not collecting that information in the first place, right? Like not trying to figure out whether people are married or being more serious. I think, I mean, when I was, I've never worn a wedding band. Um, I've never been married, but when I was in the job market, I was single and I, it was palpable to me how relieved people were that the two body problem wasn't going to be an issue. And it it, like made me mad. Like, uh, even though I benefited from it and I'm, I know I did. I remember when I was on the job market and you told me like, try to mention that you're single somehow. (laughs) Just bring that up. (laughs) I'm such a terrible person (laughs) for women. For men, I don't think it's as big of a deal, but for women, if you, if you are single, it's going to help you sadly. Yeah. I, I feel like when I I was, what what was that? We should talk about, I know. Well, it's like, hey, we need a topic for our like short opening segment. How about structural inequality in the (laughs) academic job market? Like that's we can we can knock that one out of here in five minutes. Yeah, no, I mean, right. We could go on. I do. I mean, the the retentions issue, I just want to mention like that uh, um, there's actually in a faculty member in my department uh, filed a lawsuit against my university um, over gender-based wage inequality based on retentions. And I, I, I hope that gets that the, the more general version of that. What, what was that? Such a nasty woman. I, know, I think that was actually, oh, no, that's right. Uh, um, UOMatters.com, the, the um, muckraking yeah, blog. I think it was, I think it was, I think he put, nevertheless, she persisted. It was the like, title right. of the blog post about it. But uh yeah, no, it's a complicated thing, and I probably like will get our general counsel up my ass if I talk about it too much. But uh, <laughs> so, which makes me want to. <laughs> but no, but I mean, I think the the right like the fact that retentions drive salaries is like that. That's just like so obvious everywhere. Uh, but then, if retentions are differentially available to different people based on gender and things like that, then that, you know, that it's an, it's a sort of generic inequity to begin with because not everybody can pursue a retention, but then if who can and can't is gendered, then, you know, that bumps it up even worse. Um, anyway, yeah. so in fact, yeah. when I, when I, when Davis asked me if I was interested and were like considering recruiting me, I went to my chair at Wash U where I was at the time and told them that this was happening and that I was considering it literally my chair's first response and no offense to him, but this was, it's just a fact. He said, so I was in a relationship. I had recently been in a relationship with a guy who was a professor in another department at WashU at the time. His name was John. And my chair said, what about John? That was literally his first response was like, well, you can't leave because you have a boyfriend at this university. You have a two body problem. And then I said, John and I broke up. And his face fell, and clearly that was the relationship <laughs> policy. You have a partner who's difficult to move. That's... I'm, exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating the facts. I'm exaggerating that that was their retention policy. I, you know, they did do a lot more for me. But um, so it, that's it's inaccurate to say that that was that Washi was great. But that specific moment and that specific interaction, I think, reflects what happens a lot. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think that a lot of times, having recently served on search committees, I think that a lot of times, you know, we have this this, this rule that we tell ourselves, you can't consider this information, but I think that then it comes down to this idea that, well, when it comes down to picking between two candidates, you tell yourself, well, but this is the one that's most likely to come, and therefore we should go after that person. But the reality is, I think that from my experience, it's so hard to know whether you're going to be successful in a search or not. And so I think that a lot of times actually just relaxing about like really trying to predict who's going to come and who's not actually kind of allows you to avoid some of these things and just say, 
Well, it's so uncertain anyway, so we might as well try to do the fair, the right thing, pick the best person for the job, try to recruit them as hard as we can, knowing that there is a chance that we're going to lose this person for any of a number of reasons, and um, and then hope for the best. And um, so I think that that's how we, we've tried to approach a lot of our searches, and then we can kind of avoid some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, 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 we can. Yeah, I mean, we we have. It's funny because we, since I've been here, we have this kind of norm, and it comes up in both graduate admissions as well as hiring. That if somebody starts to bring up those considerations, they get dirty looks. Like the the norm is, we're going to go for the best person or for you know the qualified person that we want, um, and it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily just come out of a sort of gender kind of basis. It's just more like. We, you know, the way we get to be good is by trying really hard to just get whatever we think, you know, we want. And whether it's, you know, recruiting the best students, whether it's hiring the faculty member that we think would be best for our department, whatever. And so that's been, I think, kind of nice that when we also, I think we're, we've been pretty good about, like, not asking people, like, obviously people will disclose or people will give signals, but also, like, when I've been in those discussions, um, you know, the, those considerations tend not to come up or, you know, unless somebody has explicitly raised it. Like we've had candidates, obviously, like, I mean, I don't think this is, you know, we've had candidates who will sort of like bring it up themselves and they'll say like, you know, before they've gotten the offer, like I have a partner or whatever. And then you kind of have to discuss it if the candidate broaches it. Um, especially, I mean, if, if they make a direct request, but like for the most part, it's just kind of our norm is like, we're not going to think about that stuff that's going to be our department chair's problem. (laughs) And our department chairs, the time I've been here, have been very good about saying, yep, that's my problem. You know, you guys decide who's the best person and and I'm going to do everything I can. But, you know, this is also the sort of thing that, like, it's, like, as much as I love that my department has that norm, it, it should be somewhat more formalized just because, like, you know, people change and then the norm changes. And it's like when it comes to anything to do with like discrimination and inequality, it's like you need you need it written down, you need rules. And so, you know, I don't know exactly how you write that down beyond the fact that there are already ways that it's illegal to say, like, we're not going to hire, you know, a married woman or whatever. But uh, um, anyway, yeah. Um, well, I think we got fired up. We got good and fired up about that one. That, that probably. Um, I'm glad we solved all of the. This this has now happened a couple of times where, like, we'll 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 get a we'll do a letter and we'll try to like very narrowly talk about like the specific problem that the letter writer has, and then we'll get we'll get like these awesome emails afterwards where people will be like, "Hey, here's this like different variation on that problem, and you guys didn't talk about it," and and. Uh, um, which is great because I mean, hopefully we'll be able to come back to those issues in the future. But it is kind of funny. It's like, yeah, we're we're not going to deal with structural inequality in five minutes, <laughs> anyhow. Um, but so I do should... think raising awareness goes a long way. I think there yeah. things like I suspect that some people I've been on social committees with just never thought about the consequences yeah. of considering whether the person's likely to come or not. And so don't, I don't do have it. Answer, don't do it, people. <laughs> yeah. So try not to do it. Like that's already a good first step. Like realize that it's it has that pernicious, you know, effects, and try not to. Yeah. Do it. And yeah. I think that sometimes the tra- you know there's a lot more training that goes into search committee preparation than there used to be. And and I think that actually you know sometimes it, sometimes it seems like bureaucracy. Sometimes it seems like something that you already know. But I think actually every time you go into a search, have, being reminded the way that some of these things can have these unintentional effects actually I think does make a difference every time you do that search. Um, So I think that a lot of times kind of going into those training sessions or uh, talking with your colleagues before you begin the search about the ways that these can have these these unanticipated effects uh, actually does make a difference because you know when you're about to ask that question or about to make that comment in the final meeting where you're deciding which of these candidates uh, to can offer to I think they're being reminded of uh, the ways that um, uh, these factors can come up, I think actually does make a difference in preventing some of these consequences. Yeah. Our, our training was take an IAT and then watch a video about the IAT, <laughs> which was hilarious because it's like, oh, there's Jenny. Like, she's my friend from grad school. She's in this video. But, uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, why don't we, uh, should we move on and do, the, do our letter? I think, uh, yeah. yeah, I think sure. we've got a, a good one this week. 
Sanjay, next time you promise a rant, I want there to be yelling and fist banging. <laughs> I might edit those things in. Well, I'm I'm a little I'm a little <laughs> depleted from giving blood earlier today. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of feeling You're a little so too noble. chill next time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Alexa, okay, do you want to read us letter. read us our letter? Okay, dear the black goat, did any of you guys consider a career outside of academia? If so, I'm curious to hear what drew you to alternative careers. Whether you've considered uh, leaving academia or not, what were the most influential factors in your decisions to pursue academic careers? Sincerely, Anonymous. My answer to this is, yes, I do consider a career outside of academia. Oh, you're using the present tense. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) The letter was passed, but you're using present. Please do tell. Well, I think Samina and I are pretty serious about starting a poutine and popsicle truck, right? Food truck, yeah. Yeah. What is it? Okay, is that a common um, thing? Because that's that she would live in a food truck and write write paper, write books. I think that's been. I'm gonna write books. I don't know if I signed up for that part. That's been my thing. Is is I wanna I wanna I guess it started as a restaurant because I started having this fantasy before food trucks even became a thing. I want to open a Mexican Indian fusion restaurant called Sanjitos, and I'm gonna like. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to make like chole but with pinto beans and it's going to it's going to be awesome like you know yeah Sanjay you're going to start a rant about transracial issues Oh don't don't you don't let, no, no that's we're not going that, let, let very bad wizards deal with that that's you know go listen to their podcast they're going to get into that I'm sure sooner or later anyway um uh Wait I thought we were moving it's about food I, I can yeah. do that <laughs> uh alternative academic Wait, careers did you, did you, do you seriously consider leaving academia um semi-seriously so like i think i consider it at the level that people who have no information about realistic alternatives do um do you know that day drinking would be harder if you left academia <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't know that um, <laughs> i'm i'm like eight out of ten committed now instead of like four and a half so what like is this is this something so like what what would it actually take to to have you yeah switch i think the times that i think about um leaving academia so i i think the question that i ask myself is whether i'm spending my time well and a lot of the time in academia i feel like i am spending my time well Um, but then there are many times when I don't think that I am. Um, so I start to consider other ways that I could spend my time. Um, and that's why I say that I consider it at the level of seriousness that somebody who isn't just doesn't, doesn't know how they would switch careers, um, considers it. So, so if it were, and, and this is the situation that everyone is in, I'm not sort of like, um, using it as an excuse, um, but I don't know, yeah, how I would go about switching careers. And I also don't know, um, how much I would think I was spending my time in a valuable way if I did switch careers. Um, but the times I think that I feel disillusioned are when like, I don't know, I'm spending a lot of time on like a paper and I'm thinking this paper is going to be read by an extremely small subset of people. And, you know, um, they've already considered all of these things anyways, it's probably not going to change their mind. And like, Yeah. Uh, so in particular, I think, um, some of the time when I'm working on research that I know is going to get a very narrow audience, um, I feel like I could spend my time better ways. I think the only time I I ever even fleetingly think about it is when I'm talking to do-gooders, um, like my brother and I, so we were were very close in age and in college, we used to argue about whether activism does any good because I was more of an activist than him. And I felt like so good about myself. And now he's a nonprofit lawyer and I just feel like shitty about myself whenever I think about what he does for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I tell myself, well, at least I'm not harming anybody. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So actually if I had it in me to like, yeah, be a public defender or something like that, I clearly, the right answer would be to do that. I mean, Rich, you probably have this feeling a lot, right? Because your wife actually like saves people's lives. Yeah, my yeah. wife is always getting off of death row and things like that, and you know, and I published a study so on happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But I should clarify that um, I don't consider leaving academia because I don't think that it's like an amazing career. Like I, I love it. Uh, like on a day to day basis, I feel like very, very happy. So I enjoy doing it a lot. It's it's more of like a sense of responsibility sometimes where I'm like. Ugh, like, yeah, should I be getting people off of death row instead? How do I do that? 
<laughs> yeah. My main reason for not considering leaving is because the thought of leaving academia scares the shit out of me. Yeah. And that's about as me too. I get thinking about it. Yeah, I I feel like I'm almost the opposite of you, Alexa, in that like those are the times when I've considered when I've sort of thought more seriously about it is when when I've not been happy and not excited about doing the work. And and for me, it's like, you know, it's sometimes hard to parse. Like, is this like, am I going through a period of depression or is this like, am I actually fairly appraising my work? Like maybe if I felt more excited about my work, I'd feel more excited about my work or, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the way that goes. But um, yeah, you know, there've just been times when I've been sort of like, I'm, feel you know i feel like i'm spinning my wheels because i'm just not excited about the work and so then like what you know maybe maybe if i went somewhere but then i start thinking like okay what would i do and is there anything that would be better and what could what kind of job could i actually get um i'm like i don't know nobody's (laughs) nobody wants i feel like there's a lot of people that ask this question i feel really bad for the lawyer because I think a lot of people have considered leaving yeah. academia yeah. much more than we have. I mean, when, when I was in graduate school, I took two. I took a year off after my second year. So after my master's, I took a year off and to go live with my wife in Colorado. And um, and I worked for a market research company. And I can remember the boss, the president of the company, um, at the end of that year when I told him I was going back to uh, finish my degree, he said that was a totally wrong decision. I was, I was in a PhD program and academics are all awful and you should really, uh, you know, you should, you should not go back to academics. You should stay in market research and, uh, you'll be much happier with your life. And so, you know, I mean, really, I bet I could have, I bet I could have stayed in that job and I could have done research for them on topics that were boring, but the process of research would have been similar. Uh, you know, I would be interested in the methods that they're, you know, that they were using the statistics that they were doing to do their analyses. And so, you know, I think that for people that are, you know, early career stage where they haven't decided whether they want to go through the hassles of finding, you know, an academic job and moving around and all the things you talked about at the uh, beginning, um, you know, I think that there are lots of ways that it can work out and, and be a satisfying uh, career in, 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 in the same way that academics are. But, yeah, it's hard for us to imagine right. um, in the position we're right now um, that this is going to be something that, that, that we can imagine, that we can see ourselves doing. Yeah. Right. You, do, you just don't know and you, you've sort of picked it or you've landed in it probably for some reasons. But it's like, I mean, all the people that I know that were either grad students with me when I was a graduate student or like students – you know, since I've been a professor who've who've gone on to other kinds of jobs, like, they're not like sitting there kicking themselves going, Oh, God, I wish I, you know, (laughs) they're, they're, you know, they're doing like, they're, I mean, they're better and worse jobs within academia and outside of it. So I don't want to say everything's sunshine and roses in either place. But like, there are people working on interesting, important problems, using the skills that they learned in graduate school. This is something I was having uh, a beer with uh, a former student of yours, Rich, actually, who who mm-hmm. then uh, you know came to U of O and w- was a graduate student who worked with me. Um, and you know, she was saying like she's she's applying for jobs in in the tech industry right now, and and like you know that there are skills that she learned in a PhD program that are applicable there that you don't necessarily recognize when you're mm-hmm. in graduate school that even that these are like important useful skills that you have um but like personality psychologists know how to measure shit better than anybody else and you know there's just like things that you learn and so um yeah it's it is kind of weird to ask us and I almost feel like maybe like if we had I mean we we did in our department, we did a speaker series where we brought people who had psychology degrees who are working in the tech industry. And because we wanted our graduate students to like hear what that kind of work is like, we wanted them to be able to talk to people. And so that, you know, they, so we brought in people because like, it's like, I can't tell you what it's like to work at Google, but we brought in somebody who works like Google and they can tell you what it's like to work at Google. And they, and they actually made it sound pretty cool. I was like, Oh, maybe I should do the Google thing or, you know, um, uh, yeah. So maybe <laughs> well, we're I, the wrong group of people to ask. Yeah. I, we had, um, go ahead. Um, I think that it is like really important actually to consider careers outside of academia, especially when you're at earlier stages, like maybe it's too late for us now. Um, but I think that being in academia in the earlier stages, like in grad school and and um, even before that, is kind of like being on the show The Bachelor, 
So on the show, The Bachelor, like you're given this like one option as your goal and everything is telling you that you should pursue this one option, right? Like in The Bachelor, it's The Bachelor, right? Or The Bachelorette. Um, and you're like sort of in this weird echo chamber where everyone is telling you that's the only thing you should want. And I think academia is like that too. So we're sort of like programmed, especially in grad school, to think that um, that we should want an academic career and that's like the only way to succeed and um, it's the thing we should prize above all else. And sometimes I sort of like joke about how, yeah, like so, you know, when I graduated um, from my PhD and I got a job at the University of Alabama, I was like, oh my God, I hit the jackpot. Like this is the best thing that could have ever happened. And as a result, like I didn't even question, you know, like leaving everything that was familiar to me, moving from like Canada to the US, moving from Toronto to Tuscaloosa. Um, and I'm I'm happy I did that. I, I don't have, you know, a counterfactual to tell me what my life would be like otherwise. Um, but I didn't even question it because I was so conditioned to think that that was like you know, the thing that I should want. So I think it's important to, to question that sometimes. Yeah, that's a really good point. And maybe someone should tell the contestants on The Bachelor that. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't matter. But um, we also try to have people from industry come to our brown bag and, and give our guide students like a, some opportunity to ask questions. And then we had Paul Litvak, who's at Airbnb, who has a PhD in psych or decision sciences or something like that. Um, and he recently posted on Twitter that he made like an FAQ for people considering going into industry from a psych background. And I, I highly recommend that. So follow Paul Litvak on Twitter. And look yeah, at his I'll try to remember to, to put that in the show notes when we post this. I saw that. It was terrific. I thought it was like, it was just like, it wasn't like super like complicated. And it was just like, if you're a graduate student and you just want to know like the first things you need to know, here's what you need to know. And it was so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, when he came to our department, he was great, like very balanced, very honest. One other thing that I think we've I've noticed in our department, or actually across our uh, departments within our uh, university, there have been more uh, initiatives trying to get people to get to, to give them the skills, graduate students, the skills that they would need to go off and to do these types of industry jobs. And actually, one of the things that I've noticed about that is it actually changes the environment in a way that actually I think is really interesting for people that are just doing their standard academic work. So I think that uh, there are programs, training programs, classes that students can take that give them additional skills in uh, additional types of data uh, analyses, uh, computer programming skills, these sorts of things that they bring back to our group. And uh, one, it helps us do our research in ways that we wouldn't have thought of doing before. So I think encouraging students to get that experience actually benefits everybody else in the program. Uh, but also as far as kind of some of that disillusionment you might feel in terms of, you know, doing your uh, um, very basic research that you wonder where, where the applications are. If you have people that are doing a broad range of things within your program, I think that it's actually sometimes uh, easier to see uh, some of the importance of the work that we're doing. So I, I actually have been really excited about the ways that the university has been trying to kind of provide opportunities for this because I think that the skills and experiences that people are getting actually help even me kind of continuing on in academics. So I think it's something we try to encourage. Yeah. And I know some faculty members, like, don't, they frown on that and they don't want their grad students to leave academia. And my reaction to that is, like, when I see people who I think are great and who I, I personally, from a selfish point of view, wish they would stay in academia and they talk about considering leaving academia, I think, oh, we need to up our game. Like, if we want to yeah. keep the best people, we need to make academia a place where these people are fulfilled and we need to find out why they're leaving. And if those are things that we want to change about academia, then we need to change them. If they're things that we don't, that we're like, no, 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 academia is not the place for you. You should be looking elsewhere for those things, then that's fine. But if, if they're leaving because they don't think that we're rigorous enough or they don't think that whatever, you know, things that we want to be, you know, we want to be a home for those, for people who want those things out of a career, then it's on us to, to up our game. Yeah. Yeah, we should be competing for the best talent, not just kind of being snobby and assuming that we're the best. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, I think we should. I think we should move on to our main event of the day, which is uh, talking to Rich Lucas about uh, replication research. So, Rich, actually, for people listening, uh, Rich, Rich also has a real research program. Uh, he studies <laughs> happiness and life satisfaction and personality stability. Uh, um, he's got a lab at Michigan State University. But he also, uh, as a sort of a sideline that's grown up, I think, in, in the last handful of years, has been doing replication research. It's actually 
a lot of it is replication research that's uh, um, very relevant to the main work that you do um, because it's sort of addressing processes and issues, sometimes methodological issues, sometimes substantive issues um, that sort of impinge on the interpretation of the kind of work that you do. Um, and uh, so that's kind of what we wanted to talk uh, about today is what is it like to be a replibully rich? Take it away. <laughs> so the fact that I feel like I have to add this is annoying and like says something about the situation in our field. But I just want to add like Rich has won a bazillion awards. He's editor in chief of a journal. He's on the board of SPSP. He's an endowed name chair at his university. So like just to go to your point that he does a lot more than replication, but like I feel annoyed that I feel like I have to say that, but because obviously we're not, it's not like we only have guests that have endowed chairs and blah, blah, blah. Like we plan to have a wide range of guests and it's not like a thing that I care about that much, but I just want to point that out because I think there's this, something we'll talk about is misperceptions about replicators. Okay. So endowed bully. There we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm an <ins> bully. Um, <laughs> So, Rich, you do a whole spectrum of research, but because you do replication research also as part of the, all the things that you do, you know, people throw around this term replicator, right? Like there's the replicators and the other people. I'm curious, what do you think of that term, both as the way people talk about it and also kind of, you know, how does it match or not match how you think of that part of the work that you do? Yeah, I think it can be complicated. I think I have used the term. I talk about it that way. I think that sometimes it's a useful shorthand for, um, you know, talking about the person that is in that role at a particular moment. So you might be talking about what happens in replication studies uh, versus in original research, and you might want to use the term replicator to describe them. So I, I definitely do use it. But I do think that sometimes it implies that people that are doing replications, that's all they do, or that there's something different about the way that they do their research or what they are trying to get out of the research that I think can be problematic. So I think that every time I try to use the term, I often do, um, you know, say that, look, I'm using this term as shorthand, but I think that uh, it doesn't capture motives or, uh, you know, or, or a fundamentally different way of approaching research. An interesting way to think about it is like, you know, we'll talk about like the first author of a paper and we'll say the first author, blah, blah. But then we don't like say, well, first authors, blah, 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 right? Like it's something you yeah. are on that particular <laughs> paper, but it's like not a category of types of researchers. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Or like the experimenter, right? And yeah, it's the same sort of thing where we don't divide. Some people are experimenters and some are whatever else, theoreticians or, you know, whatever. It's like it doesn't divide people from it's not it, like the variance is within person yeah, it's not right, between right. yeah but somehow replicator has gotten this like you're you're in a camp rather than it's like a role that everybody ought to be occupying at some point or another right like yeah. at some point we all ought to be running replication research and so it's a role that sometimes we'll occupy yeah i mean in so but that doesn't seem to be where we're at yet yeah i've been in a lot of rooms where even with me in the room and i assume most people know that some of my best friends are replicators um, and even then, like people will say, like I just don't understand why anyone would would do that. Like, what what could they possibly, what could their motives possibly be besides like to tear other people down and or like Schadenfreude or things like that. So that one of the reasons like mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about this with Rich is to give kind of a human personal like story to why people spend their time doing this. Yeah. So it's one thing I was excited yeah. to give. I mean, how how did you get started, Rich? Like what? Yeah, what what got you into doing replication studies? Yeah, it's it's really interesting thinking back. I mean, I think that in some ways I've I've always really done them, even though I didn't really think of this as a special category of research. So, I think actually the very first paper I published as a beginning assistant professor was a replication study, and it was published in JPSP, and there wasn't a big deal about it. And it was actually a failure to replicate a bunch of uh, uh, or an effect in a bunch of studies. Uh, that I thought would replicate. It was by a former student of my advisor, and uh, I did a bunch of studies, and they seemed not to work out the way that the original study had, so I tried to publish this because I thought it was important, and I was able to frame it in a way that uh, even before, you know, all the concerns about replicability were really uh, being discussed, I was able to frame it in a way that made it seem as though it was an important um, uh, piece of research, and so it did get published, and there wasn't any controversy about it. There wasn't uh, any backlash about it. It was just something that we did. Um, over the years, you know, I think that I have tried to replicate the work that I've been doing. So, you know, we, we often uh, have studies where we use these large 
uh, panel studies, and I think that each one of them is good on its own, but I try to replicate them with uh, additional panel studies that I know exist out there. Um, but then I think that also, I think when we started talking, you know, when, when this crisis or whatever uh, started, um, I just really believed that replication was, direct replication was one way that we could start to address some of the problems that we had. And I was just curious to what extent do uh, important findings that are out there replicate if we try to use the same methods over again. Um, so I think that actually, if I look back at the, the various replication projects I've worked on, there's been so many different motivations for uh, getting involved in them and, and, and continuing on with the work that we did. Samin, you mentioned that you think that like, there's a perception that replicators are trying to tear effects down. Um, and I'm curious whether you guys think that it's like, is it not okay to do a replication if you are skeptical about the original effect or if you, yeah, you think the original effect is not going to replicate. So the most often when, when I hear people talking about their motivations to replicate things, yeah, they talk about like their curiosity or the relevance to their research, but is it not okay to think, I just don't buy that at all. I want to see if it's real. I definitely heard people express that. I actually heard it expressed at SIPS last year. So even among a crowd of like people who are committed enough to come to SIPS, there def that view exists. Um, I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, it's interesting. Wait, wait, hold on. Samin, can you clarify? Do you mean you heard at SIPS people saying, yeah, that's why I do replication no. research? Or... I heard people saying it's no. not okay, okay to choose to replicate something because you don't believe it, because you think it'll that's, fail. Okay, that's what I thought you were saying. Yeah. I wanted to make sure yeah, that yeah. was clear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and maybe, you know, I might have heard it out of context because I was going in and out of rooms and stuff. Yeah. But, um, and, and not that there's, like, I, think, I think we should have that debate. I think that's something to talk about, whether... So some people, I think, think that. I don't think that. That doesn't mean I'm right and they're wrong. Um, but I think it's interesting that we don't ask that about original research. Like, is it okay right. if you already have a foregone conclusion about what you believe about the effect when you do the original study? Like, many people are not going to stop believing the theory or the effect even if their study fails and might p-hack to get the right. They might be testing to a foregone conclusion. And we should be worried about that either way, right? Like, but anyway, I'm... We should let Rich talk. No, no, no. Actually, I think that I don't have any a privileged opinion about uh, replication studies just because I've been involved in some of these projects. But I, I do. I share that opinion that, um, you know, that yeah, the, the 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 same issues that we would raise about any sort of motivation that uh, they don't just apply to the replications. But the other thing is actually, I think that we should push our research to be able to to withstand the scrutiny from people who might not believe our findings and whether that's original research or the replication studies that we do, I should be able to design a study, uh, describe the methods in such a way that if someone were able to rep or if I were to do that study and present that in, in an article, um, you know, it should withstand scrutiny from people who don't believe in that effect. And that's true for my original research and for my replication studies. Yeah. So someone who thinks that you were biased should have all the information they need to see where the bias might have crept right. in or to reanalyze the data or to, yeah, I mean, it's hard because it's always, you know, it would be impossible to show every detail of the procedure and everything. So there's always some room for undocumented mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bias. But. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that is interesting how like replication and open science have gotten bundled together. I think in a lot of people's minds, like, sharing data and doing replication research. It's like kind of the same group of people who are advocating for both of those things. People sort of put it under an umbrella of issues. They're, they're not necessarily the same things, but I think it's for this reason that it, it's, you know, they're both serving this larger goal of verifiability, right? Mm -hmm. And so we want science to be verifiable. And so that means, you know, we can see the materials and whatever to critique it, but then also we can verify it by trying to run it ourselves. Another common theme that Rich talked touched upon on his new blog, The Desk Reject. And we should, this is a good chance to say right. it out loud because it, it's ambiguous. The name of the blog is The Desk Reject, not The Desk Reject. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> but one of the things you talked about in your first post is that, um, oh, I lost my, my train of thought. What was I going to say? That Oh, that the research doesn't belong to anybody. So mm -hmm. like the original research and the replication doesn't belong, right? You don't own it. And I think that's a common thread in replication research and in open science that like it's a, it's a, fallacy to associate an effect with an author and think they own it and so therefore they get a say in whether something counts as evidence for or against it and so on yeah and right. i think that one of and the... i think that go ahead go ahead <laughs> i was i was just gonna say that like i would um imagine that that's part of people's rationales for thinking that um replicators shouldn't be allowed to replicate an effect when they don't believe it so um i'm not sure what 
what people give as their reasons. Um, but I think that some people might say that there is an asymmetry between like the motivation to find an effect and the motivation to show that an effect doesn't exist, especially because we associate effects with people. And so people see that as like a malicious action. Um, so yeah, I agree that, you know, separating people from findings helps that to some degree. And I think that there's two versions of this going on right now. One is, is the version that we're talking about right now where I don't believe in effect and I want to tear down that effect. And then I think that there is also some skepticism that people that do replications are part of this movement that wants to show that, that psychology is rotten to the core. And by, uh, by having lots of failed replications, they're proving their point and, uh, you know, and kind of making the argument that we make, need to make all these changes. And so I think that both of the, those sources of skepticism kind of motivate some of the negative reactions to replication attempts that are out there. So we might be, as people who do replications, we might be motivated to make them fail partly because of the specific effect that we're working on and partly because we want to prove something about uh, the way that psychology is functioning right now. Do you think there's anything to that at all? I mean, I think the, so I guess uh, it's possible. So again, I go back to my original argument that these studies should be able to withstand the scrutiny, even if I did think that. I think Mm -hmm. that we should be able, if I did something wrong in my study, you should be able to point to what it was that I did wrong. I am interested in the extent to which there are broader problems. And so part of the reason that I get involved in replication studies that are unrelated to the research that I do. So again, I I, I participate in a variety of different replication projects. But part of the reason I get involved in those ones that are unrelated to the research that that I do is I want to know whether the standard procedures we have for conducting our research and the standard procedures we have for evaluating our research are actually um, leading to uh, robust research kind of passing through uh, this process. And so, so yeah, I am interested in answering that as a question. I, I hope that I uh, approach it objectively and just try to be very clear and transparent about the methods that we're using, the analyses that we're doing, putting it out there for people to evaluate. Um, but I am interested in that broader question, for sure. I think that, you know, if I want to play devil's advocate, I think if, if I was out to show that the field is rotten to the core or that a particular effect is, is not true, um, I guess it might be easier to get a null effect and hide the things I had to do to get a null effect than it is to get a significant effect and hide the things I had to do to get a significant effect. Maybe it's easier to get, you know, a false negative than a false positive. And if we don't have norms of transparency and so on, maybe I can do that mm-hmm. and get away with it more easily. My, I get... Like, I think so there might be something to the idea that like if you're really motivated to make something fail then it, that's not hard to do mm-hmm. if you're really motivated to make something succeed it turns out that's not super hard to do either mm-hmm. but maybe a little bit harder than making something fail um, but then the counter to that is well we do have stronger norms of transparency for replications so mm-hmm. actually I'm not sure it would be that easy to get away with the things the hacking you'd have to do the like reverse p hacking or whatever to get it to fail the other thing in response to that, anyone who would accuse me of trying to make a, a study fail or something like that, I think that every single replication attempt that I've been involved in, if we failed to replicate an effect, um, and an, uh, the author of the original paper wants to say that we've done something wrong or that we lack the expertise, I am always willing to work with that author to do some sort of adversarial collaboration. And actually, I would buy evidence. If, for instance, we did an adversarial collaboration, where we set it up that we use the exact same procedures in my lab and we then they use the exact same procedures in their lab and they got the effect and we didn't in our lab i would buy that there is something going on there that we need to investigate further whether it's expertise or some sort of contextual moderator um, that's leading to that difference i would be okay with that and i would accept that evidence um, the problem is i think that, that when we've done this when we've failed to replicate a paper uh, an effect and offered uh, to work uh, and do some sort of adversarial collaboration. Um, so far, people haven't taken us up on those offers. Um, but I think that I would be open to that as a way to prove myself wrong about my biases influencing uh, the results that we find in our application studies. And I, that's right. an offer. Like, if anybody wants to take me up on that, I'm happy to do one of those collaborations. I mean, I, you know, it, it, it seems like those... You know, we, we've talked before on the podcast about sort of drawing inferences about people versus about research, right? And we don't, we don't want to draw when an original author's one study doesn't replicate. We don't want to draw any inferences about people. But we do 
just as a part of evaluating the field, we, we do draw inferences about patterns. That's how we decide, like, oh, this person's a good researcher. We want to hire them. It's like the, pa- the overall pattern in their record. We don't hire people for, like, one good effect, usually. Um, and, and so, likewise, I mean, I think that if, if someone had that sort of general skepticism, which I, I, you know, I would challenge whether it's, like, a problem for someone to have general skepticism any more than it's a problem for someone to have general optimism about psychology, which a lot of people do. But if, if they did, like, you know, you're kind of, you know, at some point your reputation is going to be on the line. Like, if you can't get a bunch of effects and time after time people come in and go, nope, I got it. I went back and, you know, did the replication and I got it again and Rich just can't seem to get shit. <laughs> um, I think that would, uh, I mean... I don't know how many of those it would take, mm-hmm. but it would maybe it would take one and people would start doing the thing they always say they don't want people to do. But, you know, uh, um, I mean, I, I do think there's some sense in which when you're running replication research, you are putting your your reputation on the line in that sort of longer run sense. Right. That that and especially you, because you 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 don't do you, you're not somebody that's done like a one off replication. You've done a bunch of them. Sometimes I think you had a nine study paper <laughs> on mood and life satisfaction um so there's like nine chances to uh-huh. show you were wrong nine times uh-huh. uh, uh i think yeah. we have at least two nine study replication papers now wow. <laughs> so, yeah. so related to that so for our listeners who don't know can you tell us a little bit about the 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 topics and, and authors of the original studies replicated. And the reason I ask about the authors, even though we've been talking about separating the authors from the effects, is I think that there's a pattern among the papers you've replicated, so just to address one elephant in the room, mm-hmm. that the, a lot of them have a senior author who's very, very famous and often well-respected. And I think that's one thing that leads to the perception that people like you are out to tear people down and that one way to get... that, that replicators believe that one way to get famous is to tear a famous person down and then that's an easy path to success. So I want to ask, is it a coincidence that you've replicated a lot of, a few times now famous people's work, different famous people's work, or how did that come about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that, again, if you look back at the studies that we've tried to replicate, they, the, the reason we tackle these particular topics varies across the different studies. So the most recent one that we did... Um, actually was one that is extremely relevant to work that I do. So it was on a famous effect where uh, that showed that mood affected life satisfaction. I do research on life satisfaction. I do research on the measurement of life satisfaction. All those effects have implications for the work that we do. They were done by um, famous researchers, uh, partly because they're influential studies. And, uh, and so they have, they're often cited when people talk about the research that we do. So that was the motivation for, for trying to replicate those. Um, those studies. Um, other studies, actually, it's, it, there's a variety of reasons. So, for instance, one of the things that we do in our lab is we want to have our undergraduates uh, uh, um, get experience doing research, and one of the projects we offer them is to do a replication of a study that they choose uh, just because they're interested in them. I think a lot of times what happens is that the studies that undergraduates are interested in are some of these high-profile studies that get a lot of attention for good reasons, um, and those happen to be done by um, uh, famous famous authors. So it is the case that at least one of the replication studies that we've published ha- was uh, chosen by an undergraduate researcher who had no reason to be skeptical of the author or uh, the specific question. They, they chose it because uh, they were interested in that. Um, and so I do think that it's a little bit of a coincidence um, for the ones that we've chosen um, that, that in some cases they've, they've had uh, famous authors. There are other studies that we've done that haven't gotten as much attention that, uh, um, that also didn't have as famous authors as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess... No, go ahead. Yeah, well, it just it it's sort of right. It's like if you're going to pick important work, then that's going to be correlated with you know the author's stature and status because that's how you get status is by doing work that other people judge to be important. And you know, I can imagine like the the flip side if you were replicating work done by early career people and grad students and people would probably be these damn replicators are picking on junior scientists yeah. and that kind of. It's uh-huh. like if if someone wants to to take exception, they're probably going to be able to find a reason to, and, you know, and I, I think, I think the point you made earlier is a good one. Like you, you have reasons and you can very clearly state why you've done all the things that you've done, 
but in some sense like a goal is to make that stuff matter less anyway mm -hmm. right like the, the whether it's an original researcher or a replicator it's to make their you know to make the the sort of evidential test of doing the experiment you know kind of to, to try to sort of control and minimize the role of their beliefs and expectations and all that yeah so i've been trying to anticipate what questions someone might have who isn't familiar with why people do replications and like some misconceptions they might have but i want to throw it to you and ask what misconceptions do you think people have mm -hmm. or what have you come what like have you run into that people assumed about you or other people who do replications that wasn't true what do you wish people knew yeah i think that it is often the case that i mean i think the biggest one is this idea um that we are out to get someone. And so I've heard now twice, I mean, one directly where uh, we were working uh, with an original author on a paper that we had um, tried to replicate. And it was the case that they um, accused us of trying to destroy social psychology <laughs> or, you know, or being part of an effort to destroy social psychology with uh, the replication attempt that we had done. I've also heard secondhand from other authors whose papers we've tried to replicate um, that they thought that we were trying to destroy their career or something like that. And so, you know, I think that oftentimes there is this idea that there, that, that there's something about that person or there's something that we're, we're trying to, um, you know, that we're out to get that person or, uh, or an effect or something like that, which isn't the case. I mean, we basically want to run these studies and see what happens uh, with the results, we would publish them regardless of which way it turned out. We would work with, you know, like I said, anybody that wanted to do an adversarial collaboration, we would be happy to do that as well. Um, but that's, I think, the biggest one, the biggest uh, potentially negative response that we get. Do you feel like when you talk to those people that it, that that communication helps? Like, is the contact hypothesis true? Like, <laughs> would we all get along better if we if more people talk um, to each other? You know, I found the, that it varies. You know, I think that though, I mean, it, it is the case that we haven't had that many conversations. Um, I've I've had some long email exchanges where we've we've tried to kind of hash out certain things and not really been able to come to an agreement about how to proceed with one you know with a, a replication study that we're planning. Um, after the fact, when I've learned about hurt feelings, um, I think that those types of conversations uh, haven't happened. And they're with actually some of these cases are with people that I respect a lot, uh, people that I like a lot. Um, and so it should be easy to work these things out. But I do think that sometimes um, our ideas about, again, about motives or, or, or uh, what's going on does, has prevented it from actually happening. Rich, have, have you been on the other side of that? Have you had other people try to replicate your work and kind of been through that experience? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. So not with, it's in, it, uh, it, uh, yes, I've had that experience too, not within psychology, actually. So I think that the, the area that I work in, um, uh, a lot of, one of the substantive topics that I focus on is whether people adapt to life events. And a lot of times we use these big panel studies where people are followed for many, many years and they're, they're tracked uh, every year, their life satisfaction is tracked and we can kind of look to see what happens when they experience unemployment or something like that. And so it turns out that economists are um, doing the same type of research. And so it has been the case that I've published a paper uh, on one of these topics and then uh, you know a year later an economist will come out and say not only can they not replicate my finding but actually they use the same data set and come to completely different conclusions um, which is even more of a statement about my competence right <laughs> they use the same data and they did their analyses correctly and they came out with a different answer and so as far as something that is you know would potentially reflect on me as a researcher I've, I've definitely had that experience um, you know, I think that it's fine, actually. I think that one of the, the one of the reasons that so again, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I think those uh, experiences that I've had have been pretty productive has been because they use publicly available data. So, you know, I have my study, you know, I have my analyses uh, that I do and I show what they are and they have the same data and they're doing their analyses and we come to different ideas about what the model we should be using, but it's all really transparent. And so anybody on the outside can kind of look and see what the, what we're doing differently and can evaluate that. So actually I think that in some ways those experiences which could be, you know, um, you know, a negative experience, I think because of this 
the, they've happened to happen in, in a, a, a domain where a lot of the stuff is more transparent. Actually, I think it protected against a lot of the negative feelings because we could have a pretty open conversation about the differences that occurred. Does that feel, are, are economists better about that kind of stuff? Is that because they work with public data sets more often? Are they more either okay with like doing transparency stuff or just in terms of the interpersonal part? Um, because I, I have to say, it would be really strange to me to learn that economists are interpersonally better about anything. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, but it sounds like maybe they are. <laughs> no, well, it's interesting because I, I think that they probably have the same negative feelings about them. But I think that as far as um, how it affects the research, the back and forth in terms of the research, I think that maybe it seems a little bit more productive that way. So I think that you know, I think that, you know, some of the people that have worked on this stuff are assholes and, you know, <laughs> it's not fun to see them <laughs> at conferences. But I think that as far as us interacting with one another and talking somewhat rationally about the research, I think that that's all been relatively productive and, and not unpleasant. Um, you know, and then other ones I think are great. Like, so there was someone that, that replicated one of the first studies I did using or tried to replicate one of the first studies that I did identified what what she thought was a really important flaw i kind of disagree with her about that so i think that we haven't resolved this but you know i went to a conference two years ago and we had a beer together and it was fun and you know i have no hard feelings about that so um you know it depends on which person it is that's on the other side but um but i think as far as the, yeah. the literature and the back and forth in the literature it's i think been pretty productive and i think that they are they are a little bit more I, my sense is that economists maybe are a little bit more used to that because they all have access to the same data uh, or I mean for, for within this research area. And so that's more normative to, to have that back and forth. Rich, um, what kind of advice would you give to junior researchers in terms of just general advice about doing replications and how much time to spend on replications, if any? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that people have to be careful about this. I don't, I mean, I don't know whether there's any, you know, this is one thing that comes up when, when people talk about doing replications, you know, um, you know, you can't make a career just doing replications. And I'm not sure, I've not really run into many people that think that you can. Um, so I wouldn't recommend to a graduate student, and I've not really run into that many graduate students who think that um, just by replicating other study, other people's studies, that they're going to uh, make the type of contribution that is going to get them a job, with one exception, and that is is the exception of people who are kind of doing this in the context of a broader meta science uh, topic. So, you know, you might be developing methods for doing better replication studies, or aggregating me uh, replication studies, or coordinating large scale meta science uh, types of investigations that involve replications. And I think that that's a a novel contribution, a unique contribution that you can make your name on. Um, but just, you know, doing random replication studies, I think that that's something to incorporate into uh, your research program um, and make that a regular. And what I would encourage, you know, early career researchers to do is to, to do that, to kind of make that a regular, normal part of what they do, uh, but not expect to build their career just doing replication studies. Yeah, I think that's another assumption people make or some kind of mis misconception people have is that people doing applications think that like we should value them the same way that we value original research and we should hire somebody if they have, you know, three JPSPs and they're all replications, then obviously we should hire that person. So I think it's it's good to like explicitly. So like we were talking about this earlier that whether you would hire somebody who mm -hmm. most of their CV was replications, I think it might be good for people to hear your answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I would not. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's not what we would be looking for. We would want someone, you know, yeah, I mean, you want those people to kind of make this contribution and the types of contributions that we expect them to make are ones where um, they are doing something that is unique to them and, and, and generally just replicating other people's studies is not going to do that. Unless, like I said, you have this other novel, innovative met, uh, meta science component to that. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that that isn't the type of person that, that we're looking for. I think, again, that's one of the reasons why actually, like, it's really good for senior people, you know, to kind of do replication studies and incorporate re replications in there to make that, to kind of create these norms where it is something that's just normal. It's just what people do is that they, um, they incorporate replications in a way that helps us understand which findings are replicable. It kind of adds to the body of knowledge. Um, uh, but also makes it something that's not 
uh, unusual for us to do. Do you think that is changing or has changed or is going to change? How optimistic are you that that's going to become part of what people, what regular people, non-replicators do? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think that, you know, yeah, it's a question. I think that there are more things out there right now. And I don't know whether this is a trend or whether it's a blip. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, JPSP has their, I mean, even if it's a, um, I think it's a, their online only uh, mm-hmm. policy for some of their replication studies, although we did just get our replication uh, paper uh, accepted there in the regular section. Um, so there are some initiatives like this that make it seem like there are more opportunities for replication studies to be published. Um, and I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll kind of wait and see whether or not that's that's a real long-term trend or not. I think another possibility is that, you know, a replication study doesn't have to be a study where, I guess, the entire point was just to do an exact replication of a study that exists already. Like, that doesn't have to be the way that replication projects all start, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you've talked about this, Rich, but... Um, I think sometimes replication projects start because somebody wants to build on an existing finding and they try to get an original effect and they don't get it. Um, and they maybe try it a few times and they don't get it. Um, or, you know, yeah, somebody wants to extend an existing finding. Um, and as a result, they end up doing multiple replications as part of um, extension studies. So I don't think it always has to be the case that... Um, yeah, people have this like one specific side project that's like a replication study. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's lots of ways that people can get into it. And another way to think about it, I've given a couple of talks to early career researchers on replications, and and I kind of think about it as kind of like diversifying your portfolio. So if it is the case that we're now moving towards a model where it's a little bit easier to get replication studies published, but it's not going to necessarily be in the highest profile outlet, you can think about those replication studies that you're doing as the um, low risk but low reward types of projects that you can focus on. That you know that if I invest my effort into replicating this study in a way that is that I, I do it well, uh, so that we learn something from it, no matter what the outcome is, um, I'm not going to get that strongly rewarded for it. But there's a place for it out there. It's a contribution that will be evaluated. And so I put some of my time into this uh, lower risk, lower reward type of research. At the same time, I'm doing the the high risk, high reward stuff that I've always done, knowing that, you know, I might put a lot of time into this one project if it works out and I get a great publication from it. You know, this is going to be really important for me. But a lot of that time is going to be wasted because that project isn't going to work out. And so, you know, I, I think that if you can think about dividing up your time in that way, again, for early career researchers, but also for uh, more advanced researchers, it's a way to, to maybe justify putting some time uh, into these other projects. Yeah. So, Rich, what what would you say is like, can you give it an example or like, what would you say is a positive experience? You, I mean, we've been focusing a lot on like, you know, the sometimes you've had conflict and I, I wouldn't, you know, want people to necessarily think that this is just like, all like doom and gloom right. and fights and whatever like what what's a either with another researcher or like a thing you've been excited to learn or with a collaborator like yeah what's a sort of positive experience you've gotten out of this yeah. as a researcher as a person yeah i mean i think that well there's there's a couple of different things i think all the early stuff that i did was a way uh, the stuff that i did before replication became this major issue um, it was just the, again, building skills, learning how to do research, learning about things that I wanted, learning about findings that I wanted to build on. And it turns out that we couldn't build on them because those original findings weren't that replicable to begin with. Now, it turns out, actually, some of that, that original paper I mentioned um, where we published a bunch of failed replications, years later, somebody took our failed replications and then did try to figure out what the difference was between our studies and some of the ones that came before. And this was a case that where maybe there was um, some sort of moderator that people could then go on and test, and, and people have been working from that since then. Um, so that was productive for that reason. I think the other issue, the other thing that actually I find rewarding right now is it is a way to get involved in, you know, improving science and improving psychology. And so I think that this has been one of the most rewarding things about about doing this is actually um, it is one of the things you can do at SIPs, and it is one of the ways that you can make contact with other people who have different ideas um, about how we can improve the things that we're doing as a field. And so I think that, um, I think that's been the most rewarding thing is making contact with people who have a a broad range of ideas about how we can improve things. 
Maybe this is really naive well, that's of awesome. me, but I feel yeah. like I'd be really excited to do an adversarial collaboration. Like, I wish that, like, I disagreed with my friends more <laughs> or, like, found people that I disagreed with who enjoyed disagreement as much as I do sometimes. Because um, I think that would be so would, much fun. I would, do. I would love, so again, the most recent replication project that we did, I would love it if the original authors identified something that was wrong or just said that we can get it and you can't and, mm-hmm. and, the, and they were confident about that and we set it up ahead of time. It would be such a great model for the way we think science should work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to participate in something like that. Yeah, I think it would be really exciting and yeah. fun. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, and uh, thank you so much, Rich, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, this was really uh, fun. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, well, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you have been listening to The Black Goat. Uh, you can find us on the web at www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us at letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. Uh, and we're on Facebook, too. And uh, on behalf of Samin and Alexa... Um, Thanks to Rich for joining us, and thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll look forward to next time.